This is a Hope 103.2 podcast. Hello there and welcome to the John 316 podcast. I'm Ben McKechn from Hope 103.2 in Sydney, Australia. And together, let's take a fresh, expansive look anew at the world's most famous Bible verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. With joy and sadness all swirling around together, we arrive at our final episode. Cass Quache from Whitley College in Melbourne and Tom Habib from Moore Theological College in Sydney have done such an amazing job, haven't they, to get us to this point. Episodes 1 and 2, What Came Before, John 3.16, covered. Episodes 3 and 4, What's In, John 3.16, covered. And What Happens Next, Episode 5 and this final episode, 6. As we continue to focus on the aftermath of John 3.16, we reconnect here with Tom and Cass by asking, why does John the Baptist show up next in John's Gospel just after Jesus and Nicodemus? So many of us, I'd say arguably everyone in the world possibly, knows John 3.16 and a lot of what happens in this conversation with Nicodemus. But Cass, moving on immediately after in John's Gospel, we get an interaction between Jesus and John the Baptist. Why? Part of the reason is like what we saw in John 1, where we have in the prologue uh, so many signposts that identify Jesus as the Word, the the Son, the One made flesh, He who is light, he, He who made the world. And then we have John the Baptist enter as a witness to the light and as a witness to the fact that Jesus is the sent one of the Son. He is the Lamb of God sent to take away the sin of the world. So he acts as this earthly witness. And once again, we have right after the interaction with Nicodemus and this editorial interpretation, we have John the Baptist re-enter again as an earthly witness to what's just been said. So he will reiterate that which has been said, that that Jesus is from above, that what he offers to the earth are the words of God, that what he offers to, to the earth are the spirit without limit, to make clear that once again, that Jesus is by far above him because he was before him and that his ministry will supersede and extend his own and continue the ministry of the kingdom. He's the one who, in fact, will give the spirit without limit. Tom, then straight after the Jesus-John the Baptist interaction at the end of chapter three, isn't this just a rehash of the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus? Like, why is this here? To me, it's not redundant, like, hear me right, but what's the purpose? Is it for emphasis? Because to me, it's just basically distilling down what we've read previously in the conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus. Mm, I think in part it's about getting used to how John writes, and that is that John is not writing a treatise where he's uh, just listing out points, but he's actually creating an incredible narrative that constantly turns back on itself again and again, reinforcing and adding more and more so that we continue to gain a fuller picture of what's already been said. We've seen that, I think, in these podcasts already, how, how John is constantly coming back but then giving us more 
more. The other thing is, is that John 3.16 is such a wonderful passage and a truly precious one for many people and, and for myself. But we should also remember there are other verses in John which are, <laughs> which are equally, you know, world-shattering as well. And I would say that John 3.27 to 35 has some of the richest and deepest theology that you'll get in the Bible. Uh, you know, you have incredible things said about Jesus here, which again is filling out and enriching and deepening our understanding of who he is as the Son of God. He is the bridegroom. All of the things that Cass said, really, he's the bridegroom, he's the, he, the Messiah, is the one from heaven, he has the spirit without limit. All The Father has placed everything, including life, in his hands. All these incredible statements. And so we're filling out more and more of a picture of who Jesus is. And then you're right. How much more then is it true to say that whoever believes in the Son has eternal life? And how much more true is it to say that whoever rejects the Son will not see life? So like you guys have been doing in our conversations, if you take John 3.16 as a good example of this, you read that verse, as you said, Tom, it's important and valuable to so many, including myself. But it's a good rule of thumb, if that's the right expression, for John's gospel, let alone other parts of God's word, to keep cycling back to get a deeper and better understanding of what's going on in it. So I shouldn't just stop at John 3.16 and go, like, great, I've nailed it, because John's gospel goes on to further and further and further develop and explain what has turned up earlier on. Am I getting that right? Absolutely. Great. It's, it's like getting to know someone. You know, the more you spend time with them, the more you'll get to know them, get to know God, spend more time with him. Yeah. And Cass, as John's gospel develops from this point, and we've touched on chapter four a few times in our conversations, but as we head towards the cross, why do you think John then gets to chapter four, the woman at the well and the other people in her local community? What is this helping us to understand about, oh, let's say, John 3.16? I think there's a few reasons why she comes up next. It's intentional that she comes after Nicodemus because she's designed, she's a Samaritan, so she's not Jewish. She's female. She is husbandless and or maybe has had too many husbands. And so there's a lot of questions around her identity, her ethnicity, even her religion and her faith. Samaritans didn't quite believe what the Jews believed. And yet she gets far more space in the gospel than Nicodemus does. She actually gets an entire chapter dedicated to her and her people and her story and her voice. Her faith is an exhibit to be commended and surprisingly and shockingly so when we should be looking at Nicodemus, who is the male, the rabbi, the teacher who should have known. He doesn't know, but she knows. And when Jesus comes to her, she and her people respond that he is the savior of the world. So she and her people are actually interpreting or further expanding on what it means for Jesus to be the savior and for God to so love the world. They're part of the world. And they believe they believe. So what's interesting here is that whereas Nicodemus simply kind of fades from the scene, we don't get to him until later on in the gospel, but she comes to the fore and as a response to her faithful belief in him, she goes out and evangelizes her entire town. 
and her entire town come out to meet Jesus. So we see that her faith isn't simply a heady belief or some kind of over-spiritualization. No, she does something about it. She drops her water jugs and goes to the to the town to tell all the people that she has found the promised Messiah and they come and believe because of this woman. That's faith or belief in action. Heading towards Jesus being lifted up on the cross, which you guys have discussed several times in our conversations in reference to John chapter 3, verses 14, 15, 16. On the way there, Tom, what sort of things stand out to you? I know it's a big gospel and there's a lot going on in there, but what sort of things stand out to you on the way to the cross that help us to further understand and therefore believe in the only begotten son that is referenced in John 3.16. So in chapters 5, say, till 12, we get a picture of what Jesus talks about from verses 17 to 21, which is the, the different responses to Jesus. On the one hand, we see a lot of people who are rejecting Jesus, a lot of people who are opposing him, uh, who don't believe his word. And I think the one thing that John is trying to do in these chapters is to show that there's more to unbelief than meets the eye, that the reason why they are rejecting Jesus is not simply because they don't have enough information about him or simply because they they didn't see enough of him or hear enough of what he said. There's actually a heart issue going on. There's a love of the world, a love of the darkness, and a refusal to turn to Jesus, a refusal to come to him. So I think we actually get quite striking picture of of what unbelief looks like, that at its deepest level, unbelief is a heart problem. It's a spiritual problem that requires a spiritual solution, requires the the work of God in our life. But of course, that's the other thing that we see in 5 to 12. We see the work of God. And this is is what Jesus says that he has come to do from chapter 5 onwards. He comes to say that he has come to do the work of the Father, that the Father in his love has shown the Son everything and the Son uh, in response and in obedience does whatever the Father shows him. So Jesus has come to do the work of God. And what is the work of God? It's John 3.16. It's what we've seen. It's giving eternal life to people ultimately through his death on the cross. And I think, as I said before, we get a beautiful picture of the work of God crystallized in the man who's born blind. In fact, John 9 gives us a picture of both the Pharisees who are rejecting Jesus, and the man born blind who is accepting him. As we go on into John chapters 12 to 17, we really get more of a focus now on the disciples, often called the the upper room discourse, where Jesus is, these are the last days before Jesus dies. And this intimate conversation that Jesus has with his disciples is all about what Jesus is going to do in dying on the cross and how You can now follow Jesus once he has gone to be with his father. What does that look like now in light of the cross? So again, it's back to John 3.16. It's giving us the significance of what it means for, for the father to give the son. But it's also then saying, okay, well, what next? What's life going to look like? And then, of course, from 18 to 20, then we get Jesus' crucifixion, his, his death. And that is very much the picture in John 3.16 of God giving the Son. And I think what Cassus said uh, again and again, which is so helpful for us to remember, that th- this is the Son is not an unwilling participant. And especially, I mean, all through the Gospels, but especially in 18 to 20, we see it's the Son who's in control. 
He is orchestrating all events here as he heads to the cross. Uh, No one can take the life from the son. He lays it down of his own accord. And so the son is working in perfect unity with his father as they perform John 3.16 and bring about this salvation so that whoever believes in him has eternal life. And then he raises from the dead. So, Cass, as I like that description there, Tom, as, uh, did you say, God and Jesus perform John <laughs> 3, 16? Uh, and you, have, you both have touched on it you know, as we've gone through these conversations about this crescendo, if you will, of Jesus' crucifixion, his death and resurrection. What do you think happens then and there, and how does it fulfill John three sixteen? Even in the the discussion with Nicodemus when he's talking about the snake being lifted up and the reference to the, the numbers passage where all eyes had to look on the snake in order to be healed, Jesus says in John 12, 32, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Now, Does that mean every single person of all time, anywhere, Ever, whether it's the everyone who believes in John 3.16 or you don't believe? Okay. What we think is going on here is that though we can't physically see and like looking up at the snake with our physical eyes or physically see all people drawing to the sun, we believe that in the tabernacle of his flesh, he invites all human flesh, past, present, future, to participate in the work of the cross there and then. So as he is lifted up, somehow he and the Father, who, by the way, has not left him alone, he's made that clear in 829, are drawing the entire world to him that they may may participate in his death in order they may participate in his resurrection. Now, what's stunning about this is that up until this point in time, God has never experienced human suffering. He's understood it because he is omniscient. He knows all things. So he's able to look into our minds and in our feelings and our thoughts and able to understand human suffering by us going through human suffering. But at the moment that he's there on the cross, something new happens for God. He actually experiences in his person firsthand human suffering and death. So as he's drawing all people, including all their sin and all their darkness, into himself, he is dying to it. And because he is life, he is abided within by the father of life, when death and sin and corruption in the tabernacle of the son meet he who is life, they are decisively condemned and judged. And in the raising of his life, death is turned to life and sin drawn into the purity of his holiness is expunged. I also just want to really stress the sense in which as Jesus suffers, he he is very much taking our place. It's interesting that um, after Lazarus is raised, we have this discussion with the leaders who oppose Jesus, who are saying, we're getting nowhere, everyone's going to him. And uh, the high priest prophesies 
that it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. And you get this picture that that's, that's what's happening on the cross here, that, that as Jesus dies, he dies on behalf of us in taking our place. And I think one way that you see that in the crucifixion narrative is through the many allusions that we get to the Passover. Uh, so this is happening during the Passover, and Jesus is very much being portrayed here as the Passover lamb. Just to take you back to the Old Testament, on the night when Israel are going to flee from Egypt, God sends the angel of death, who is going to kill the firstborn of every son, but he instructs the Israelites to slaughter a lamb and to paint the blood on the doorposts of their house. And then God's judgment, God's angel of judgment will pass over their house. The judgment will not fall on them. The Passover lamb protects them from that condemnation that we've been talking about uh, all this time. The, the death of the lamb takes their place. And that's very much what we see in the death of Jesus. He is our Passover lamb. He is the one who takes our place, who dies on our behalf. There's some other really interesting moments in the death of Jesus so Jesus says, I'm thirsty on the cross. And that's really interesting because this whole time in John's gospel, he's been talking about how he's going to offer living water and whoever drinks will, will never thirst. So we get the picture on the cross, he thirsts so that we won't. Uh, that there is that substitution picture again. Another really interesting moment, when Jesus died, we're told he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. But John could have just said he died. Instead, he says he gave up his spirit. Why? Well, it's because it's through his death, by dying on the cross, that he is able to then pour out his spirit on all people who have been rescued from their sin, who can have that new life, who can now be born again. So again, we see that the death of Jesus is the key to this life that he's been offering. He dies so that we can live. Not disputing the claim that that's a, that's a significant key, but do you think we can run a risk of focusing too much upon the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And I think it's possible to do that even in light of what we've been discussing with John 3.16. But also, as we've been discussing about John 3.16 and the conversation around it, that's like where things are pointing towards, but there's also this question or this issue of belief in the one that's dying and rising again. So without trying to drive a wedge, or maybe that's what my question is, or my statement, we shouldn't be trying to drive a wedge, should we, between what we know and understand of who Jesus is, what he came to do, but also why. Because I might just want to jump to the cross and the resurrection, but then would that mean I might not so much understand exactly why they happened? I I think... Uh understanding the cross is central to understanding who God is. The cross isn't God being out of character. Rather, the cross is central to the character of God. God has always been a self-giving love and a love that offers not simply another, but himself. So we see that in Genesis where he says to to Abraham in, in Genesis 15, hey, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Grab some, some animals, cut them in half. Does it? Abraham falls asleep and then this flaming torch kind of goes between these animals. What's this about? Well, in covenant, you cut animals and then the two parties of the covenant walk in between the two halves, symbolising this covenant is made between both of us. And if I break it, 
or if you break it, me walking through the shed blood symbolizes the fact that if I break it, the blood's on me. I'm taking responsibility for me. But in the covenant he makes with Abraham, only God walks through those animals. In other words, if there's a break in the covenant, the blood's on me. And then we see a little bit later in Genesis 22, when he says, hey, Abraham, take Isaac, you're going to sacrifice him. They get to that final moment and then God provides the sacrifice. God is continuously self-giving and and self-offering. And so what we see on the cross is simply God doing his best and being God by offering himself. The work of the cross and the work of the salvation is an interior work of God, which means you and I actually get to enjoy and participate in that which he does within himself. So then the cross is key, as you were saying, Tom. So I should then be trying to do what I can to see the cross as the crystallization or the lens of God's love and then try to work out how to understand it through the rest of the Bible. Absolutely. The language of lifting up is really interesting because it can mean physically lifting up or it can mean glorifying, uh, praising. Jesus is lifted up on the cross. That is, he's physically lifted up, he dies. But in John's gospel, that's where we see his glory. That's where we see the glory of God. The wonderful love of God is seen in the death of his son for us. And that is lifted up for all to see. That that is what glorifies the son and in doing so glorifies the father. So there's no greater demonstration of God's love that he died for sinners like us. This almost seems unfair of me to do this because each conversation we've had, I've asked you this question as we come to the conclusion of our conversation. And during our conversations, thank you very much for having them and for sharing such wisdom and insights about not only John 3.16, but all that's around us. That has been amazing. Um, You've also been sharing plenty along the way of what this means for all of us, but I'm still going to ask you this unfair question again of what does this all mean for you and me? So it's great to discuss it, and I hope for us and anybody else joining our conversation that they do not only wrestle with this, but really like dive in deep and hopefully, uh, if they haven't already, see the love and the glory and the salvation on offer from God through Christ. I I hope that is true. But to restate that point again, then, what do we do with all of this conversation about John 3.16 and this one in particular, what comes after? We live it. So in John 3.16, we've seen God's decisive verdict on darkness and sin, which is an absolute no. And we've also seen God's decisive verdict on the world and those he's made, which is a yes. I love them. And we see this lived out in the story of Nicodemus. This is not the final episode of Nicodemus. Rather, the gospel kind of takes us on a, a wider meta-narrative of this man's life. And we see this man come from the darkness and his story ends in the light. And it ends holding the body of Jesus who has lifted himself up. There he goes with Joseph of Arimathea to prepare his body for burial. 
his story doesn't end in the dark, in faithlessness, but in belief, carrying the body of Jesus and honouring him in the physical acts in Jerusalem, in life and in light. I'm really glad you went back to Nicodemus. I totally forgot that the gospel is going to go back that way eventually. You guys have referenced that a number of times. I totally forgot about Nicodemus. Nice way to bring it back. Tom, here's this unfair question for you. What's this all about for you and me? Belief, that we should believe. Uh, I completely uh, agree that, that we need to live it. And how does John end his gospel? He says, I've written this, that you would believe, believe in the Son, and that by believing in him, uh, you would have life. You know, we've talked a little bit about what does it mean to believe. It certainly doesn't just mean believe that this is true. John talks about receiving Jesus. You know, Jesus has come, he's died, and he offers this salvation. He offers this eternal life, and it's eternal life for everyone who believes. That's what we're told in John 3.16. And so the, the call to us is to respond to that, to believe, to receive to receive what Jesus has given us. And I think that can be a hard thing for, uh, for some people. I think people often have doubts, people often have questions, and I think that's perfectly understandable. But that's why John wrote his gospel. He wrote so that you would believe. So if all you've read is John 3.16, I'd encourage you, read the rest of John because his whole book is, is trying to get you to believe so that you will have life. And so that's what it means for us. It's a call for us to respond to Jesus and to put our trust in him, to believe in him, so that we can have life in his name. What a way to finish. Not just with Nicodemus seeing the light, but the reminder that any of us can as well. Respond to the offer of salvation, eternal life in Jesus through belief and we can live our lives in that light. On behalf of all of us, let me extend how grateful we are to Cass Quatche from Whitley College in Melbourne and Tom Habib from Moore Theological College in Sydney for their expertise, insights, asides, analysis, and devoted heart for helping all of us to significantly see God's love for our world through his one and only son. If these conversations have been a blessing to you, fantastic. Bless others by sharing them. And thanks so much for doing that. I'm Ben McKechn. Keep on believing in the one who gives us eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Hope 1032. Thanks for listening. The God of the Bible is a talking God. All throughout Scripture, God is seen talking to people, first the prophets, then most fully in Jesus, and today through His Holy Spirit. When we choose to follow Jesus, the Spirit speaks to remind us of all that Jesus established and then apply it to our lives. So how does the Spirit speak? 
How do we know it's God? And what happens afterwards? I'm Tanya Harris of God Conversations. Join me as I explore what the Spirit is saying to us today. Everyday God Conversations will encourage you each week to learn from the God Conversations of Scripture, the ultimate God Conversation in Jesus, and how to hear the Holy Spirit for yourself. Subscribe to God Conversations at hopepodcast.com.au or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, it was never meant to be a one-way conversation.